G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 13, we're continuing our series in Corinthians, in Paul's letter to this church in uh, Corinth, the ancient Greek city of Corinth there. 1 Corinthians 13, it tells the story in context at least, of a a church full of people who are extraordinarily gifted. They are a talented, gifted, wondrous bunch of individuals there in Corinth. So I wonder if we might start actually with this story from Carol Dweck. Uh, Dweck tells the story, it's tragic really, uh, of a child prodigy, very talented, extraordinary, wonderfully, you know, gifted uh, a child prodigy violinist named Nadia Salerno Sonnenberg. Uh, and it's a cautionary tale of extraordinary talent squandered, wasted. Uh, this violinist started so strong and so young. Here's the story. Nadia Salerno Sonnenberg made her violin debut at the age of 10 with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Yet, when she arrived at Juilliard, that's the, uh, the famous art school in Manhattan, so uh, a violin debut at the age of 10 with the Philadelphia Orchestra, yet when she arrived at Juilliard to study with Dorothy DeLay, the great violin teacher, she had a repertoire of awful habits. Her, her fingerings and bowing were awkward and she held her violin in the wrong position. But she refused to change. After several years... She saw other students catching up and even surpassing her. And by her late teens, she had a crisis of confidence. She said, I was used to success, to the prodigy label in newspapers, and now I felt like a failure. Everything I was going through boiled down to fear, fear of trying and failing. (laughs) She has this reflection, if you go to an audition and don't really try... If you're not really prepared, if you didn't work as hard as you could have and you don't win, you have an excuse. Nothing is harder than saying, I gave it my all and it wasn't good enough. And Dweck says, Carol Dweck says, the idea of trying and still failing haunted and paralysed Nadia. She had even stopped bringing her violin to her lesson. Uh, I know there are many teachers in our congregation. Is there a greater tragedy than that in the classroom? Uh, You know, played with an orchestra, a pretty good one, at the age of 10 years old. All of the raw talent in the world, in those fingers and, and that ear and that mind. And who knows, perhaps she could have gone on to take the discipline of violin to new places altogether. Who knows where she could have got stopped trying. Had the greatest tutor, the greatest teacher of the day there at Juilliard couldn't be bothered bringing her violin to practice. And if you'd like to hear what unlocked things for Nadia Salerno Sonnenberg, um, I would heartily recommend Carol Dweck's book. It really is excellent. It's not a Christian book at all, but it's called Mindset. And uh, if uh, it, it's uh, one of the best books, non-fiction books that I've read in the last few years, um, Carol Dweck's book. Check it out. You can talk to Drew about it later and he'll rave 
um, uh, lots about it. Anyway, but there's, there's one book that you can go to that's even better, and that's the one we're looking at this morning. Um, uh, and it's even more important, it's right in front of us, Paul's letter, uh, specifically this part of this book, Paul's letter to the talented, extraordinary, almost prodigious church in Corinth, because it is one thing to squander a talent, friends, on the violin, it is quite another to shipwreck an entire church in your talentedness. Uh, the Corinthians had this prodigious talent, it seems, when it came to their spiritual gifts and all that they had to offer um, at church, but they left something far more precious at home than just their violin. So how about we pray as we come to 1 Corinthians 13? Please pray with me. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you very much, actually, for the extraordinary abilities and talents and gifts that you have given to mankind all down the ages. Father, it is, it is a work of your common grace, uh, that is your, your grace to believers and to non-believers alike. Um, God, you have showered amazing and beautiful, sometimes dazzling things on this world, things that inspire us and challenge us and help us and enrich us. Father, thank you for the gifts of music and art, and architecture, and engineering, and design, and so much more. But God, our Father, as we turn our attention now to gifts in the church, we ask that you'd help us particularly to remember the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we are his body of many parts. So, Father, instruct our minds, please, and guide our hands, really, in the exercise of gifts in and for the church this morning, please. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Um, so, 1 Corinthians 13, I'd love you to have that open in front of you if you have a Bible with you. Um, it's been said that this is a passage, 1 Corinthians 13, about all that Christ is and all that the Corinthians are not. <laughs> is that a damning way to look at this passage? 1 Corinthians 13. Obviously, it is a passage about love. Nothing could be plainer than that, could it? Uh, but David Garland, um, a commentator on, these, on this chapter, I think is right to warn us up front against sentimentalising this chapter. It may be about love, but that doesn't mean we should sentimentalise the whole thing, because there's one thing it's not. It's not soppy. It's not soft. Paul is not being gentle with the Corinthians in this chapter. I really like the way Garland puts it, actually. He says, this chapter is not a digression, a charming, self-contained hymn on love that Paul drew from his files to serve as a pleasant diversion or, or to give people something to read at weddings. <laughs> no, that's not what it's... Did, have you heard this read at weddings before? I almost feel like asking for a show of hands of people who haven't heard this passage read at weddings. It's like that, isn't it? Maybe it was read at your wedding. In many ways, it is a wonderful wedding text. But here's the thing. I wonder if it would be anywhere near so popular as a wedding text if people understood it in context, if people looked at the context around it. It's not a diversion. It's not a digression. It is an indictment. It is a criticism. We are dealing this morning with a passage about all that Christ is and all that the Corinthians are not you may have extraordinary talents in your church. You may aspire to exercise amazing gifts, the kind of gifts that people see and they go, wow, 
I wish we had that in our church. You might be a seriously impressive church already. In many respects, you are, my dear Corinthians. And perhaps this morning, we really desire to be more gifted and a more impressive and a more expressive church with all kinds of gifts. But let me show you three things, says Paul in this passage. Let me show you three things. Let me show you how to waste your gifts. Let me show you how to ruin your relationships. And let me show you how to remain childish forever. Let me show you how to waste your gifts, how to ruin your relationships and how to never grow up. Um, that's what Paul lays out for them uh, in, these, in this um, chapter, this short chapter in Corinthians. So uh, firstly then, how to waste your gifts. Paul has painted the picture, uh, hasn't he, from last week of our local church, of every local church in the world as a body as a body. Do you remember that? And like every human body full of, uh, the local church is full of wonderful gifts and abilities and, and different features and every part contributes to this unified whole and every part needs all of the other parts. You are different to one another. Do you realise that Christian? And that is good. It is by the design of God that you are different to one another. But together we form this one unified whole under Christ. But now, so having emphasised the, the difference between you, the diversity, the distinction, now Paul wants to lay out for them the one way for every Christian. Uh, he wants to talk to them about the way for every Christian. This isn't an optional gift. Some of you have this gift, some that, some of you have love. No, this is the only way. And if you stuff this up, then you become a tragic, stubborn prodigy. Now, let's read from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. We'll pick it up from there. Uh, So, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. That's where we sort of trail off from last week. And we'll say much more about that next week. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Have a look down at that paragraph, would you please? The first three or four of those gifts, uh, or yes, or, or have a look up. I see some of your eyes go down and it's you know, all up on the screen. Uh, it, the first three or four of those gifts, what are they? Tongues, prophecy, uh, fathoming mysteries and knowledge, whether that's one or two gifts, I'm not sure, however you count that. Uh, they sound, don't they, like seriously high-powered kind of understanding, having insight into the Word of God and being able to convey it to the people around you somehow. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, let me teach you the things of the Word of God one way or another. Uh, The last couple, well, they're they're sort of the extreme limits, aren't they, of generosity. Whether I'm giving you um, all of my things, uh, I I, I sort of condescend to give you out of my wealth to the poor, you know, the, the extreme limits of generosity, or I give my very self, my whole body, and perhaps indeed that's talking about martyrdom there, surrender my body um, to the flames. 
the extreme limits of generosity. But answer me this, whichever batch of gifts we're talking about, these very talented, quite amazing Corinthians, who were they using those gifts for? I think the very end of each of those verses gives it away, actually. All of that teaching and speaking and self-sacrifice, lavish though it may have been, who is it all for? Paul gives it away at the end of each of those verses. Uh, End of verse 1, what does it say? So you've got, if I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I, it's an interesting pronoun to use, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what the speaker has become. That's the focus in this paragraph, the gifted one. End of verse 2. So prophecies and mysteries um, to be able to discern things, but without love, I am nothing. End of verse 2. End of verse 3. I gave it all, right? My possessions, my very body to the flames. I gain nothing. It's interesting, isn't it? It's maybe not quite what we were thinking of as, um, as the, the outcome there. Paul's focus is in what the gifted one gains or becomes or amounts to. In other words, Paul is telling this church, let me tell you how to waste the wonderful gifts that God has given you. Just use them without love, which is to say, use them for just what you get out of them. So when you go to church, um, if you're saying to yourself, I'm showing up for me, I'm in this for me, I'm here for what I get out of it, then Paul's saying, you have lost already. And not only is no one else getting anything out of your deafening gonging, (laughs) can't you see that you gain nothing either? Now, folks, I think there's, there's obvious application in that, isn't there? It's, it's sort of, it's, just, it's a way of having perspective about the gifts that you bring to the body of Christ. Who are you using them for at bottom? Uh, there's obvious application for me in this as the guy at the front, along with, I suppose, the other elders and preachers. Am I really just speaking and preaching and leading for me in the end? Is that what's important, that I get to use my gifts? And if perhaps if you serve in some way or other up the front here at church, I think you've got to weigh this stuff. We've got to weigh this stuff together, don't we? What's going on in our hearts? Who are we doing it for? Why am I even doing it? Am I doing it for love? But isn't there application as well just for every Christian? Um, so if we tease it out a little bit further, so in Bible study perhaps this week, um, you, you know the passage and you know you know the passage better than anyone else in the group on this particular week. Uh, so let's say we're in the family of sort of insight, knowledge, fathoming mysteries here, aren't we, perhaps? Well, by the end of the night, here's a little uh, diagnostic question for you. Does the rest of the group go home having listened to your deafening gonging all evening have you let others speak? Have you listened to them and, and heard their insights and, and um, wrestled, not in a negative way, but in a helpful way, negotiated together toward the meaning of the text so that you mutually understand it? On another front, do you, do I basically serve here at church? Do I serve here on my terms? Do you serve here on your terms? When it feels good or perhaps even because it feels good? It's searching stuff, isn't it? Because our motivations for serving anyone are always muddled. The solution isn't, don't serve. 
the, the solution is serve someone other than yourself. In other words, love the most excellent way. So here's how you waste your gifts. Uh, firstly, just use them without love for you. Secondly, and in a similar vein, how to ruin your relationships. So let's read from verse 4 together. Shall we do that? Um, as you do, could you please just notice the, the entire list here from verse 4 to verse 7 is a marvellous list. This is probably the paragraph that was maybe focused on at the last wedding that you were at. Um, marvellous list. The, the entire list is things that you do. Can you see that? It's, it's actually even clearer in the Greek. It's all verbs, you know, doing words, uh, whereas it's, some of it comes across a bit more as adjectives, just describing words in the English. But it's things that you do. Love is a thing that you act on. Love is stuff that you do. Let's read. So from verse 4. Uh, love is patient, or perhaps it would be slightly more helpfully put, love is being patient. Uh, anyway, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And if, um, if you were here, not only for the last few sermons, but perhaps you remember back to last year when we covered um, the first part of 1 Corinthians and the year before that, oh, sorry, chapters, um, what was it, sort of 6 to 8 to 10 last year, chapters 1 to 7 the year before that, uh, you, you might, um, you might recognise some of that in the lives of the Corinthians, but not quite as maybe that of hoped. Um, David Garland, again, he makes the point that if you flip each of those characteristic behaviours around, if you turn them to their opposite, you get a pretty sad but unfortunately pretty accurate portrait of the Corinthians. Um, he, he says, and I think this matches the story so far in, in Corinthians, he says, they are impatient and unkind, filled with jealousy, vainglorious, and puffed up. They insist on their own way, are cantankerous and resentful and rejoice in wrong rather than right. Rather than being a hymn glorifying how wonderful love is, this text becomes a subtle commentary on what is rotten in Corinth. And I think we need to ask, don't we, brothers and sisters, is there any of that rot amongst us? Impatient, unkind, full of jealousy, vainglorious, puffed up, insist on their own way, cantankerous, resentful, rejoice in wrong rather than right. Has the rot set in? <laughs> in some of the darker corners of our hearts? Sometimes, perhaps it comes out not so much here at church, I think we're a pretty self-controlled bunch for the most part here at church, aren't we? But maybe after church, in the car on the way home, you know? Some other time through the week when we're just feeling frayed and, and tired and, and worn out. Impatient, unkind, full of envy, jealousy, overly touchy, resentful. Love, on the other hand, always protects, always trusts, 
always hopes, always perseveres. You can see which one is going to keep your relationship strong and building and growing, help the body of Christ to thrive together, can't you? Now, the last of those two, always hopes, always perseveres, they actually lead into our last point together today because they're very forward-looking, always hopes, always perseveres. See, see, the thing about um, these last two, they start to give us a sense that a, a gifted church coupled with love, that gifts coupled together with love amongst the people of God, they aren't just, that's not just a church that's sort of on the move, gosh, they're so dynamic. They are a church that's going somewhere, do you see? It's not just that we've got momentum, it's that we've got direction. And that's what the last point is about, how to remain childish forever or how to never grow up. It's a question of where we are uh, headed. And the answer, of course, is the same. How do you um, have that sense of direction? How do you get to where you're supposed to be going? It's just put, uh, it's, it's, it's love. How do you stuff it up? It's just put your gifts ahead of love or instead of love. Lose sight of love and you've lost a lot more than just relationships. You've lost your future. Let's read together from verse 8. Uh, could we please, from love never fails. Um, and can I just say, these, um, I think the future that Paul is pointing toward here, see if this makes sense as we read it through to you, uh, the, the future point that Paul is looking forward to in these verses, it's got to be the return of Christ, doesn't it? As we read through, that is the moment in this text where childhood becomes maturity, where childhood becomes maturity, it's the return of Christ. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, guys, Corinthians, you, you so love your prophecy and your tongues and your knowledge and your depth of insight, can't you please see that at their best, at their best, those gifts are getting us ready for the moment when we will never need them again because we will see face to face. In the moment of Christ's return, we will be face to face with what all of those gifts were trying to usher us towards, bring us towards, take us to. And what's the only thing that we'll care about then? Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And folks, I'm well aware that uh, these verses, um, many Christians will want to point to verse 8, you know, tongues and prophecy and knowledge and so forth, uh, you know, they uh, pass away, they'll be stilled, uh, they'll cease, they'll point to those and they'll say, aha, 
Those things, tongues, they've passed away. They've ceased. They were back then in that apostolic, in the time of the apostles. We live today when we're grown-ups. Uh, we live now. We're the men. We're not the children. Um, and I just think that's not actually what the paragraph is saying, is it? That's what I think anyway. Uh, verse 12, then I shall know fully, then we shall see face to face. It is talking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the gifts that God has given his church, do you realise, are ushering us toward that day. The point is, as long as you're a church that makes out like it's the biggest thing in the world, in the universe, in all of time, is you and your gifts. You have forgotten where you're going and you have forgotten where those gifts are supposed to be taking you together. You've forgotten what time it is in the plans of God and you've lost sight of the one thing that those gifts are trying to help you towards. Trying to help us toward the moment when we, you won't have to tell me anymore about how great Jesus is. I won't need tongues and prophecy and depth of insight into God's word. Why? Because I'll be able to see him face to face. You'll be able to see him face to face. Have you lost sight of that in your life here at church? and in your use of your gifts in the service of God? Has your ministry team, maybe? You know, does the return of Christ, the day of Christ, the day that you will see him face to face, has that still got the imagination of your ministry team? Does it capture, does it captivate your prayers together? Does it get a mention there as you talk about what it is that you're doing in Sunday school this week and, and quickly pray together um, for the class? See, once we realise that our gifts... All of our gifts here at church, your gifts and my gifts, are here to help us here and now get to experience Him there and then. Then what does it matter whether I get to use my gifts in the way that I want? Let's conclude. Um, I think I might have shared this um, little quote with you before, but I, I think it's going to help us answer what is really the final question, the pressing question, the kind of the question that's between every line of text in this page, in this uh, paragraph, in this chapter so far, the critical question for this passage has got to be this, doesn't it? If this, if this is a passage on love, no, more than that, stronger than that, if this is the passage on love, I mean, can you think of a more love-focused passage in the entire Bible than this one? Maybe, okay, maybe 1 John 4. Anyway, okay, but you know what I mean, John 3, 16. Okay, but settle down. This has got to be up there, doesn't it? If this is the passage on love, then where is Jesus? Hasn't that got to be the question that we've got when we leave this passage, this chapter behind? How is it even possible if, if, um, that, that Jesus isn't even mentioned. In fact, this is the only chapter in all of 1 Corinthians where Jesus isn't mentioned and Lord isn't mentioned. It's interesting, isn't it? The only passage and it's the one on love. Where is Jesus in this passage? Well, folks, I think the way to answer that question is to ask this one, whose portrait is this? <laughs> it's not the Corinthians portrait, we've answered that pretty roundly, it's their anti-portrait if anything, do you, it, they're more, it's more like an, an, a film negative of the Corinthians, do you remember when f- cameras used to take photos on film? They're the opposite and it's not our portrait either, is it? Have a listen to this, I reckon Mark McMinn 
I think he's onto something, and I reckon it reveals the very love that is so clearly on Paul's mind as he writes this chapter. Mark McMinney says this. He said, God loves us. Regardless of how we've failed, God loves us when others don't. God loves us when we despise ourselves. God loves us when we defiantly choose our own foolish path, when we squander our souls with terrible decisions and when we are lost and far away. God loves us. In every season and every place, God loves us, not because of what we are or are not, but because God is love. And brothers and sisters, that is, what, that is who we will see face to face on the day of Christ's return. It is a passage about Christ. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. What a precious truth that is in light of the blood of Jesus. He does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Christ always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Christ never fails. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, would you please fill us with something even more precious than giftedness, even greater than abilities and resources? Would you give us faith in your sure word, hope for that day and love like the love of Jesus for us? God, we confess before you the lovelessness in our own hearts that has spilled over into our actions time and again. We remember with regret and with shame the loveless things that we carry on with in our homes, in our workplaces, certainly in our heads, and yes, even here at church from time to time. Father, we thank you for the inspiring people in our lives who have loved us with a lavish and Christ-like love. And we ask that you'd empower us now to be that example and that inspiration for the people around about us. And Lord, yes, may we then inspire one another to use every gift that you've given, every talent that you've bestowed on this church, to use those things rightly, which is to say for your glory and for the good of others in love that they may be saved. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.